From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. While the eyes of the nation are on two high-profile cases of police terror in Minnesota, there have been at least four cases of people shot to death by police in the DMV during the last two weeks. And families and communities want justice. You know, there's a word that, in my opinion, best describes what is lacking within the police forces that are charged to protect and serve. And that word is accountability. And it's up to us as a community to take that definition and take that word and hold them accountable. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, I discuss three new documentaries, including Raul Peck's new four-part masterpiece, Kill All the Brutes. The nightmare is buried deep in our consciousness, so deep that we do not recognize it. And over the centuries, we lost all bearings. Because the past has a future we never expect. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the entire system of policing in the United States remains on trial as closing arguments are scheduled for Monday, April 19th in the trial of Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd. And even though prosecutors held steady to their characterization of Chauvin as one bad apple, a dangerous outlier in a system of policing that is otherwise good, incidences of police killing those they are sworn to protect are happening around the country. Thursday night was the fifth night of protests in Brooklyn Center, Minneapolis, after Dante Wright was shot and killed after a questionable traffic stop in that Minneapolis suburb. The police officer who shot him, Kim Potter, claimed she mistook her gun for a taser and is charged with second-degree manslaughter. She is free after posting $100,000 bail. Tensions and anger are rising in Chicago after video was released Thursday of police shooting and killing 13-year-old Adam Toledo, who appears to have his empty hands raised in the air when shot and killed. The attorney for the family is calling his death an assassination. Here in the DMV, video is still fresh in our minds of Army medic Karan Nazario being pulled over in Virginia by town of Windsor cops who have their guns drawn, who pepper spray him, assault him, and threaten him with execution. And meanwhile, there are at least four new cases of people killed by police in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. On a chilly Thursday night, about 200 people gathered on the basketball court at the Marvin Gaye Recreation Center in Northeast D.C. for a visual complete with life-size photos, balloons, and candles to honor James Johnson and Dominique Williams. Both men were shot and killed by an off-duty Pentagon police officer, Philip Dixon, in Tacoma Park, Maryland, on April 10th. Dixon said he thought the two men were stealing a car and then shot them both in their own car. He is charged with second-degree murder and is being held without bond. The Reverend Graylin Hagler, senior minister at Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ, told the crowd that police violence is a crisis for the black community. And that one life should ever be taken without some consequences for that life being taken. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
As a black person in America, we're facing an epidemic. An epidemic that's been going on for a long time, where badges and oaths and guns somehow continue to take away black life needlessly. And somebody doesn't even have to pay the price. Well, not this time. This time, somebody's got to pay the price, not only in Silver Spring, Maryland, but out in Minnesota, wherever things take place, Wisconsin, so sisters and brothers, we got to understand that a part of our visual this evening is to let somebody know that somebody has to stand account. There will be a rally today, Friday, April the 16th, 6 p.m. at Black Lives Matter Plaza for justice for James Johnson and Dominique Williams, as well as all those killed by police. This week in the Derek Chauvin trial also saw more links between that murder case and similar cases here in the Capital Region, the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia, which we call the DMV. Former Maryland Chief Medical Examiner Dr. David Fowler testified in Chauvin's defense Wednesday, saying that he would classify George Floyd's death as undetermined, but with a primary cause of cardiac arrhythmia. He also blamed George Floyd's drug use and even exhaust from the police car's tailpipe, a claim which was refuted by the prosecution on Thursday. Well, Fowler, who is called regularly as a defense witness by police, also determined that the 2018 police pinning down and smothering of Anton Black, a 19-year-old college student on Maryland's eastern shore, was an accident. Fowler is being sued by Black's family, and this week legislation called Anton's Law became a law. Anton's Law requires that criminal investigations and misconduct records of a police officer to be public information. As it turned out, one of the police officers involved in Anton Black's death had a long history of complaints of misconduct and brutality. Anton's Law is one of two clear police reform victories by the Maryland Coalition for Justice and Police Accountability this week. The other win is putting control of the Baltimore City Police Department on the path, at least, to be back into the hands of Baltimore City residents instead of in the hands of the state. But two other pieces of legislation passed fell far short of community demands. The controversial Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights which gave police more rights than other citizens, was repealed, but it was replaced with new rules that don't include the full citizen oversight of the police demanded by the community. Changes in use of force laws were also made, but perhaps the changes are too subtle, activists say. And finally, legislation to remove police from schools did not pass. I spoke to Jonathan Hutto, organizer with the Prince George's County People's Coalition, about what the victory means for grassroots organizing around police who kill and brutalize those they are sworn to protect. The way I framed it uh, in the immediate aftermath was inches, as in, as in, as in football, that we, we got some inches out of this, uh, that we have to remain vigilant and remain organized. So, for example, let's take the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, for example. That was the... That was the House Speaker's bill, Adrian Jones, her bill to abolish the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, which for years, decades now, we've said is the codification of the Blue Wall of Silence. It was back in 2016, in the aftermath of the Baltimore Rebellion, 
that rebellion sparked by the brutal death, the rough ride of Freddie Gray. It was in 2016 that we saw the 10-day waiting rule. This was a, a rule within Leobor, the Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights. It said when an officer was involved in an act of excessive force, uh, a shooting, a death, there was 10 days that cannot be questioned. It was in 2016 we checked it down to five days. It took an entire rebellion in a city to get it down to five days. In, in the aftermath of what we've seen nationally, all over this country, in the aftermath of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the ramifications of that locally here in Maryland, we finally have gotten five days about it. So now there's no waiting period um, at all mm. in the state of Maryland. It took that much blood in the streets, that much boots on the ground. That's what I mean by inches, right? So in a sense, it's, it's a victory. But what a way to get a victory, Esther. I mean, we have to... Black lives have to be stolen and taken for us to to get a modicum of humanity. Uh, so we continue to push. We continue to organize and stay vigilant. We take this baton. We're right here on the ground now because what happens is uh, even though these laws are passed, we have to ensure they're not nullified. We learned this from 2016. Uh, the, the, the chief of police here in Prince George's County and throughout the state has had the power to put citizens on internal police trial boards since 2016. Uh, it has not done so. That was signed into law five years ago. So one of the aspects, Esther, that came out of this, that is a serious progressive reform that we have to ensure is adhered to, and many of us learned this coming out of Ferguson in 2014, all that military equipment that looked like pictures from Beirut or pictures from Afghanistan and Iraq, but it was Ferguson, Missouri, all that military equipment coming through that DOD 1033 program where these local police departments were getting militarized. Well, out of this legislative session, we now have in law uh, the banning of police departments, local police departments receiving uh, that influx of military equipment coming directly from the Department of Defense. But we have to, but we have to actually ensure that takes place. Okay, so... I just want to ask you, as a military veteran, your reaction to what happened to the Army medic Karan Nazario in Virginia being pulled over and brutalized by the police there, and also just the more of the recent reports that are coming out about the extremism in the military. I know it's a lot, but I just didn't want to hang up without us me at least asking you because I know that you 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 are a veteran and you have a perspective as a black veteran absolutely seven years seven months and one day in the United States Navy I was enlisted from January of 2004 to August of 2011 separated uh, honorably honorable discharge nearly 10 years ago let me say that you know I was talking with an academic out of Tufts University uh, Nan Levison, um, the author of the book War is Not a Game, The New Anti-War Soldiers, where she talks about uh, our activism from within the ranks. I captured it in a book myself titled Anti-War Soldier. Nan asked the question as to what is it that attracts military members to fascist organizations, to ultra-fascist organizations. And, and one of the, um, the inconvenient truths, is, but it's just a real truth, is that uh, the overwhelming majority of military members, especially from my experience in the military, 
where I was met with fascist ideology head on from the from the day I enlisted to being off the coast of Iraq on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt January 10th, 2006 with a hangman's noose dangling in front of my face. This, this ideology comes directly from the communities of these military members, their families, the institutions. The only difference we saw here in this latest iteration, this latest social milieu we're in right now, is that, that sentiment, that ideology being organized, meaning moving from a latent position to an organized position. But certainly I, I faced um, direct, I mean, oh, I mean, overt, in your face, Nazi salutes in my workspace. You know, Martin Luther King being referred to as Martin Luther Kuhn. I mean, this is in 2006. And the, the most disparaging aspect for me back then was not so much what uh, some white sailors were overtly doing, but it was the internalized oppression of some of my some of my people of color, some of my black some of my black sailors, because the notion being that you have to deal with this in order to ascend within the ranks in order to have a livelihood within the military. Let's just say um, we, we fought tooth and nail, Esther. Uh, we fought tooth and nail all the way uh, to dead Congressman John Lewis's office with an equal opportunity uh, complaint that we filed uh, against those white sailors and was able to bring a uh, modicum of justice within that workspace on the Theodore Roosevelt. And, then I, and it actually launched uh, anti-war uh, appeal for redress the, the struggle uh, against uh, racism and xenophobia uh, within the military is, is beyond real. And, and so now for it to, to be out front and center in terms of what, uh, what is the culture, the, uh, the prevailing culture within the military. But at the same time, there's also a, a strong working class culture within the military. And you got a strong base of, um, of, uh, of people of color within the military as well primarily coming from marginalized communities. And so what I would, so what I would say to our, our peace and justice, social justice community is that if we really want to beat back these fascist forces, we got to organize our, our members of the military. We cannot allow the fascist forces to have an open season in terms of organizing. There's a strong history in this country, a GI movement during the Vietnam War of organizing military members to active duty military members to be involved uh, in the anti-war movement we got to we got to go we got to bring it go back and to bring it forward in terms of that history and trajectory other news on policing and military this week michael bolton inspector general for the u.s capitol police testified before Congress Thursday with results of his investigation into the January 6th insurrection, saying that Capitol Hill police overlooked their own intelligence in the run-up to the deadly attack, including an assessment that, quote, Congress itself is the target, end quote. He also said that leaders barred the force's riot response unit from using its most powerful crowd control measures. In other national news, police are investigating the latest mass shooting that occurred Thursday night at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. At least eight people are believed dead. Democrats in Congress introduced legislation that would expand the U.S. Supreme Court from nine to 13 judges, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she opposes the measure and would not bring the bill to the floor. She said that she supports President Biden's executive order forming a 36-member commission 
that will study potential Supreme Court reforms, including expansion. Thomas O'Rourke has our update on the Union Drive at Amazon in Alabama. Despite 5,800 Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, receiving ballots to vote yes or no to unionize, slightly more than half of the ballots were returned, and Amazon defeated the Union Drive with 1,798 voting no and 738 voting yes. While Amazon contested 500 ballots that have not yet been counted, these ballots can't change the outcome. But the retail, wholesale, and department store union is not giving up the fight. President Stuart Applebaum announced this week that the union will be filing charges with the National Labor Board of unfair labor practices by Amazon throughout the unionization campaign and election period. This legal process could eventually overturn the election result and compel a new election, but likely not for many months. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. There are major developments in international news, even as I speak, but the week started with a bombing suspected by Israel of an Iranian nuclear site used to enrich uranium. The attack may sabotage the Biden administration's stated intention to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal, and it occurred Sunday when Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was in Israel for talks. Biden also announced that the timeline for the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan is extended to September 11th of this year. And progressive analysts are wondering if the new deadline will be met. And meanwhile, the Taliban says this new date, rather than the May 1st deadline negotiated by the Trump administration, is unacceptable. And finally, in culture and media, the human rights activist Angela Davis was among those who spoke at a news conference Thursday in support of imprisoned journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was scheduled to undergo heart surgery on Thursday. Abu-Jamal has suffered from COVID and is a survivor of chronic hepatitis C and medical neglect. Activists are calling for a mass mobilization to shut down Philadelphia April 23rd to the 25th. More information is at Let Mumia Out. Dot com. And with chants of Free Julian Assange, a coalition of activists rallied at the Department of Justice Sunday to mark two years since the WikiLeaks founder was illegally seized from political asylum in the Ecuador Embassy in London, arrested and imprisoned to face extradition to the United States for exposing U.S. war crimes. And finally, the annual conference to end U.S. support for Israeli apartheid, sponsored by the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy and the Washington Report on Middle East Research will be held virtually in two parts this year. The first part is Saturday, April 17th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. For more information, search for the event in U.S. Support for Israeli Apartheid on Facebook or go to the website israelapartheidcon.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
the mother of James Johnson, two and a half year old son. No child deserves to be told that their father was shot in the back and murdered for no reason, no matter what it was. Especially when the circumstances did not pose that the defendant nor anyone else was in imminent harm or danger to use lethal and deadly force. I strongly believe that the defendant's past behavior should have been a red flag and the perfect opportunity for his workplace to conduct an investigation and evaluate the individual and his series of unfortunate incidents. Instead, and th instead they armed him and if a thorough investigation would have been conducted, it would have revealed his compulsive and irrational behavior. Instead, they armed him and paid an itchy palm unstable individual to protect and serve our communities. It seems that the only protocol that was used in this case and in too many others is shoot first and ask questions last, which is a direct violation of due process. And which that is a part of our constitutional rights declaring that the government shall not deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without right. due process of the law. Right. I am here to seek and to stand up for justice and accountability for the cold-blooded, callous, and cowardly murder of my son's father. I'm here to stand up for our son, to stand up to evil, to stand up for our community and all victims affected by this heinous and senseless crime. For Mr. Johnson did not die in vain and his murder will not go out go without consequence. Again, I am filled with sorrow and disgust for I have to tell our son that his father was murdered and daddy won't be making dinner, no hugs, no bike rides, no car rides, no bonding time. The way, the way Mr. Johnson was murdered is inhumane and barbaric and all parties involved need to be held accountable for his untimely and tragic death. We want justice and we want peace. Thank you. And now we will have Marcus. Thank you. Also want to thank the Black Lives Matter local chapter. I'd like to thank the Silver Spring Justice Coalition, Black Panther Party, and all the other organizations and individuals that helped us pull this event together. 
I also want to acknowledge the community that helped shape Zoe. Everybody around here knows James and Zoe. Praise Zoe, Zoe. Shaped them into the man we all know and love. James was a man, he was a brother. He was loved in this community. He was loved in other communities. I grew up on in Oxon Hill, Maryland, and he was at my house every other weekend growing up as a kid. Uh, our family is strong and we stand here united as one to support James, to make sure that his name is honored and to make sure that justice is served. I mean, look around. Our communities are plagued by gun violence and excessive force. You know, there's a word that in my opinion best describes what is lacking within the police forces that are charged to protect and serve. And that word is accountability. I want to read a definition of the word accountability. Let me read that. When I Google accountable, an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility or to account for one's actions. Clearly, the police forces in the communities and the cities that we serve don't know that definition. And it's up to us as a community to take that definition and take that word and hold them accountable. Yeah, that's, right. that's our calling and our job as a community. And I stand with each and every one of you. I wanna make sure that these young men names are honored and that we send a message that we will not tolerate this and we will not stand for this without standing up. Thank you. Thank you. And members of Dominique's family are here. His aunt Teresa is here. His brother Malik is here. But I understand this is very painful and it may be too difficult um, at this moment for Dominique's family to speak. But if there's anybody, okay. On behalf of Dominique's family, Erica Till, his cousin will speak. When I think of my cousin, this is what I think of my cousin, his kids. He did everything possible to try to take care of his kids and be there for his kids and in their lives. And not even just his kids, some of his friends' kids as well. When I got that call that day, a shock went through my body because I ain't never expected to hear nothing like that in my life. This was a senseless crime. Yes, it was. My little cousin was taken from me. I don't get to get no more hugs. I don't get to see his smile. I don't get to feel his presence. These black men keep getting taken from us, and this is ridiculous. We can't stand for this no more. My cousin died because a man thought. A thought. How many thoughts do we have a day and we can't have action on?
family has lost another leg. We have lost both our grandparents. We lost Damo's mother, and we got a sister, our aunt now, that is incapacitated. Our cousins, our children are all we got, and they're getting chopped away from us. Something's got to give today. No more can we do this. This is ridiculous. Every time I look at them, I see my cousin. And each and every last one of them, look at them. Look at the picture. They don't get to see their father smile no more. This is just unfair. But at the end of the day, I know he looking down on us. And he gonna continue to keep giving us each strength to make it through each day. We will get stronger off of this. And that's all I got to say. Rest in peace, Damo. Rest in peace, though. You have been listening to Bree, Marcus, and Erica, among the friends and family of James Johnson and Dominique Williams, Both men were shot to death by an off-duty Pentagon police officer who has since been charged with second-degree murder. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everum. and for this month's episode of the f-word on fascism we're going to explore three recent documentaries but give our main focus to raul peck's new gripping four-part documentary series exterminate all the brutes in it peck traces the origins and history and results of european and american colonization and extermination of indigenous peoples all around the world, and how that has led up to this current moment, the moment of the January 6th insurrection, and the rise of overtly displayed fascism. This is part one of the trailer for Exterminate All the Brutes. Here is the story we have been told in Columbus's travel journal. They were discovered. There is no such thing as alternative facts. There is something we need to talk about. Three words that summarize the whole history of humanity. Civilization, colonization, extermination. 
This is the origin of the ideology of white supremacy. This is me in the middle, and I just want to understand. Why do I bring myself into this story? Because I am an immigrant from a whole country. Neutrality is not an option. So you best duck. So you best duck. Get out the way. It's time to own up to a basic truth. A story of survival and violence. We know now what their task truly is. Exterminate all the brutes. So that is part one of the trailer for Raul Peck's Exterminate All the Brutes. And here to help us dive into 500 years of history is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, who else could I talk about this film with other than Gerald Horn, right? But it occurs to me that in this moment, we're living in of growing white nationalism in Europe and in the United States. Peck's documentary is like a narrative from everybody else from all over the world, right? All the people and all the lands, you know, raped for centuries by the United States and Europe. The documentary seems to say, you know, time's up, you know, time's up on your narrative. This is our story. This is our history. What's your take on it? Well, first of all, we need to salute Raul Peck who may be the world's leading filmmaker right now, and who happens to be of Haitian origin. I'm thinking of his docudrama Lumumba, I Am Not Your Negro, about James Baldwin, the young Karl Marx, sometimes in April, about the Rwanda genocide. And he seems to glide easily from documentaries to narrative features, that is to say fiction films. And what's striking about Exterminate All the Brutes is that it soars far beyond the liberalism that is so endemic in history and historiography in the United States of America. I mean, for example, uh, just one example will suffice. In the current issue of the New York Review of Books, a leading U.S. historian is justifying and rationalizing the killing of indigenous folk in Minnesota in the 1860s. Whereas Raul Peck, of course, castigates and denounces it, and by the way, connects it all to the enslavement of Africans as well. And as the trailer suggests, he also tries to trace white supremacy, and like uh, a few historians have sought to do, he ties it to the Crusades, uh, Western European Christendom's attempt to reclaim what they call the Holy Land in the 11th century, and then tracks that through indigenous genocide through enslavement of Africans all the way through the Holocaust in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and the 1940s. And along the way, he employs dramatic recreations, movie clips, not to mention his stunning narration and home movies, because he is a player in this movie. And in fact, someone really needs to do a book about the Haitians, which included his family, who went to Congo under Patrice Lumumba in the early 1960s to assist that struggling regime. And I understand the mother of the Washington, D.C.-born comedian, uh, Dave Chappelle, was also part of that journey of intellectuals from the Americas to Congo. So this is a marvelous exercise in cinema. One thing that we've been dealing with here in D.C. lately as part of this rise of this fascist movement here in the United States is the rise of the Proud Boys, for example. And they 
went marauding through D.C. on two occasions after the election leading up to January 6th. And you know that they have this slogan saying that they're not going to be apologetic for creating the modern world or something like that. And this movie, Exterminate All the Brutes, is a response to the kind of arrogance and ignorance about history that these types of movements display and that they use to kind of whip up membership among people who don't really understand the three things that Raul Peck talks about in this documentary, which is uh, civilization, colonization, and extermination, and how the blood and treasure of, you know, the seven continents was basically distilled into making this what they call civilization. And even at this point now, so-called civilization can't survive because those resources and those people aren't there to be bled dry anymore. So I wanted to get your take on just the material difference in how you look at history in your many books, the material difference in how you look at history and what Raoul Peck presents here. Well, one of the things I try to do in my books as evidence in the titles is try to connect it all to capitalism and imperialism. And you are correct to suggest that you cannot begin to understand capitalism nor imperialism without understanding this plunder. Uh, this is the lesson that's been brought home to us by the late Trinidadian scholar and political leader Eric Williams in his epical book, Capitalism and Slavery, in the book by Guyanese scholar Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, in the book by the still alive, I'm happy to say, Nigerian historian at the University of Rochester, Joseph Nikori, and his book on Africans and the Industrial Revolution in England. And that's one of the problems that imperialism faces today, because a lot of the low-hanging fruit of imperialist plunder has been captured already. And that, of course, has given rise to these fascist movements who are now wreaking vengeance on the black community, oftentimes with blue uniforms of police officers uh, cloaking what they're trying to do. And I must add one more footnote, which is one of the most disappointing aspects of what's going on today, it seems to me, is that in light of these fascists bearing their teeth on January 6, 2021, it's quite disappointing that some of our friends on the left have really downplayed the profundity and significance of that. I think that they feel that since these insurrectionists were mostly working class and middle class, that their energy can somehow be turned around against the 1%. But uh, that kind of misjudgment has been made repeatedly over the decades. One point that was really striking for me in Raoul Peck's documentary series is the history he tells about the Scots-Irish. And I know that in, especially I, I believe your book on the, the 16th century, you talk about the colonization by England of Ireland and, and also the treatment of the Irish. But I think that this movie gave me a visual 
in terms of the Scots, the Scottish people being kind of exported to Ireland to colonize there, to like take over land there. And then these same group of people were almost like these shock troops who were like already hardened and very able colonizers, you know, sent as shock troops to the Americas. In in the United States, they served as the slave catchers. They served as the the soldiers, you know, that went out west to, you know, committing genocide against the Native Americans. And I think that you went on to just talk about other ways around the world that this export by England and or what became the UK, how it had this impact in settler colonialism around the globe. Well, one of the questions I pose in my book on the 16th century is the synergism between how London deployed the Scotch Irish and, and to an extent, a certain Irish folk too, uh, in the Americas and whether or not this plunder of the Americas was a template for the plunder of Ireland itself or vice versa and how the interplay between these two plundering exercises tend to animate and reinforce one another. And then as you suggest, it's not only North America, these forces play a malign role in Australia at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century and as well in New Zealand a few decades after that. And one of the striking aspects of Raoul Peck's wonderful documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes, is that he puts a label on what's going on, and the label, in part, is settler colonialism, which is what we're enduring in North America, what transpired in Australia and New Zealand, what transpired in Southern Africa, in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa as well. And once again, remarkably, the term settler colonialism is a term that's oftentimes absent from the vocabularies of even those who can consider themselves to be radical. You know, I want to mention this one point before we take a brief break. I had to go back and I think maybe when I was looking at the trailer again, realize that Ryle Peck plays with history and he juxtaposes things. He makes some very, I don't know if the word's ironic or not, juxtapositions throughout the documentary series to make us think differently. Like at some point he makes the enslaved people in Africa or the people who are being colonized and tortured in the Congo, he makes them white. And he, 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 he makes us think about how differently we are trained to see people and to humanize white people versus African people or Africa's African descendant people. And when we see a, a white person being whipped, you know, that, you know, we are taught to see that very differently. But in any, in any case, when I went back and saw one of the trailers, I realized that when we know those familiar chants from Charlottesville, you will not replace us. You know, Jews will not replace us. He has that situated in a far off shot where a white settler, like say maybe from the 1700s or 1600s is looking off in the, in the distance. And there are these people marching, chanting this. And so you could think that 
you know, maybe these might be Native Americans saying, you will not replace us. You will not replace us. But it's really the same, you know, tiki torch bearing people from Charlottesville in 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia. So anyway, let's take a brief break and we'll pick up on the other side. When I first read Exterminate All the Brutes, written by Sven Lindquist, the ideas and connections I had begun to thread were suddenly laid bare in front of me. The entire story I was looking for was on display. From Africa to America, from slavery to Europe, from Germany to the Holocaust, all the way to where it all started. But to talk about America, I had to address the origin story, the story of the Native American genocide. That's when I found Roxanne Dombard artist's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, an important part of the puzzle. Then I found the third book, Michel Rolfe Thruyot's Silencing the Past which would bring me back to my own story with Haiti, a country forcefully overlooked in its role in changing Western world history. So then I was now ready to deploy the story from its beginning, 600 years of history in one single film. It creates a new narrative that can carry the nuanced and emotional levels of the subject matter and crack the core story from the inside out. As writers, creators, filmmakers, we have no choice than to reflect our societies and provide knowledge and challenges in addition to mere entertainment. And as artists, we need to break the limits of our art. This is what this film specifically and concurrently set out to achieve. Exterminate all the brutes. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. I'm in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn. 
our geopolitical analyst, about Raul Peck's new fascinating four-part documentary series, Exterminate All the Brutes. And that was actually a little bit of Raul Peck talking about the series, kind of a statement video released by HBO to let people know about the series. So, Gerald, before the break, we were talking about the beginnings of colonization and the real destruction and, and genocide that the underpinnings of the story. But when we start to look at the post-colonial period, we're in a sense talking about from the, the 1960s on up until today. So we're still dealing with the United States and Europe not being able to directly colonize people, but putting up puppet governments or destroying socialist governments, trying to foil any type of government that does not want to fall in line with the capitalist and imperialist order, countries like Cuba. So there's this whole post-colonial period that's been marked by regime change, brutal wars, to try to maintain this brutal order that was set in place during the era of genocide and colonialism. So, and we've talked about these things, you know, it's not even history. It's like ongoing when we talk about Afghanistan, Libya, Mozambique. And so maybe do you want to talk about Afghanistan because it is in the news right now? President Biden made an announcement this week that the United States is going to withdraw not on May 1st, but uh, on September 11th on a specific anniversary now. So you want to draw those connections for us? Well, President Biden and the press have been suggesting that the United States involvement in Afghanistan has been since 2001. But we all know that interference in Afghanistan on the part of the United States began in the late 1970s under Jimmy Carter and his national security advisors, Abignev Brzezinski, who sought to destabilize the left-leaning ruling party in Kabul, the People's Democratic Party, which was factionalized, which is nothing new. The Democratic Party is factionalized, as is the Republican Party as well. But the way they did that was to get in bed with religious zealots, so-called Muslim fundamentalists. And the idea was to drag Afghanistan's neighbor and ally, then Soviet Union, into a quagmire, which succeeded. It helped to destabilize both Afghanistan and the Soviet Union, with Moscow pulling out in 1989. But interestingly enough, the People's Democratic Party leader and leader of Afghanistan, Najibullah, survived for a number of years after the Soviets pulled out. And he wanted a deal with the United States, but Washington refused to deal. Instead, along with Saudi Arabia and its Gulf allies, pump more money into the pockets of religious zealots, such as Osama bin Laden. And so finally, by 1992, he was lynched and castrated Negro style in Kabul, leading to the Taliban coming to power, leading to the events of September 11, 2001. Now, I don't really expect a sincere withdrawal by Washington on September 11, 2021, because these religious zealots are just too fundamental to U.S. foreign policy. So Afghanistan is not leaving the headlines anytime soon. Well, you know, as you mentioned Afghanistan, I am thinking also about Iraq. The thing that Raul Peck talks about is civilization, colonization, and extermination. And we can't forget, you know, the number I use is 2 million Iraqis dead. And that's from the study of medical professionals, researchers going there, 
Some people say a million, some people say 200,000, but it's just that this body count, this body count is never thought of as genocide. And, and people don't even know how many people in Afghanistan have died. When we talk about Libya, the stream of tens of thousands of people now trying to cross the Mediterranean that have died because of the failed state that we've created there, this neo-colonial attack on Libya that's created a, a, a new round of slavery, enslavement of people and extermination of people because they are dying by the tens of thousands trying to get out of Libya, whereas under Muammar Gaddafi, people were trying to get into Libya to live under one of the highest standards of living in Africa from so many other places in Africa that the United States and Europe have depleted and plundered and raped and depopulated for so long to prop up the colonial order. And I bring up Libya because when you think about the streams of refugees coming from places like Libya, coming from places like Syria that have gone into, you know, because of the the actions of the Obama administration, mainly Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who cackled about uh, Muammar Gaddafi being killed, being murdered, uh, assassinated and sodomized on, on video. But there's this wave of people from the formerly colonized world, the still colonized world streaming into Europe that has helped give rise to this new wave of nationalism in Europe, the anti-immigrant sentiment that has like fueled the rise of this nationalism in Europe. It's also, you know, our plundering and this neo-colonial policy in South America and Central America in this hemisphere helps to fuel this nationalism here in this country, the anti-immigrant stance, right? So, it's almost like the whole policy coming full circle and feeding on itself and backfiring on itself. Well, as you were speaking, I'm thinking of the fact that the European Union subsidizes agriculture, which then produces cheap food, which then floods the markets of a country like Senegal, wrecking their agriculture and thereby forcing folks in Senegal who would be working in agriculture to try to lead the country either to Libya, where they are then killed or enslaved, or to the Mediterranean, where they die in the choppy waters trying to get to the European Union precisely. Uh, this is the circle of iniquity, the circle of death that you can normatively describe as imperialism. I have run out of time for this hour, but I I'm going to continue our conversation and we'll post the remainder on our website uh, and link to it on our website on thegroundshow.org. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, is on all your podcast platforms. The music we played this hour included Leroy and Lanisha by Kamasi Washington. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum, 
Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you <laughs>